on this, our Mother's Day. Amen. We will have a more formal service celebrating our mothers, uh, but for now, happy Mother's Day. We ought to honor our mothers. They do a lot. A lot. That's true. That is true, literally and figuratively. <laughs> we would not be here without them. <clears throat> One guy said that, uh, you know, everything we have we inherited from our parents. Even having children is hereditary. If your parents didn't have children, you wouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so thankful for my mom. She's passed on, as uh, perhaps some of yours have. But uh, even if our parents are are dead, they do live on in our hearts, our memories. Amen. The decisions we make, who we are today is due in large part to our mothers. Amen. Let's remember uh, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays we're, uh, we're praying together as a church for May 23rd, our Save Our Nation service. Stand by. I don't see a light, but uh, it's working now. Is this four batteries? Okay.
circumstances, God does everything for a reason. Thank you, sir. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this service. Uh, there's a lot going on in our congregation. There are people with very real and very desperate needs. Uh, let's pray for them. We don't have to know the specific needs. God certainly knows them. Uh, but let's just pray for one another. Let's pray that uh, as we move forward into the plan that God has for us, yeah, resistance is going to be encountered. Uh, it just has to be. And so uh, when that resistance is encountered, we need strength. We need one another to see us through that. Amen. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. I am so thankful for you, for the plan that you have for this service today, the plan that you have for each of your people today. I pray, O oh God, that the ministration of the Holy Ghost would be manifest here this morning according to our desperate need and according to your perfect will. Minister to us, your people, today, I pray. They are an exceeding good and precious people. They have been purchased with the holy blood of Jesus Christ. They have been filled with your spirit. They have been called by your name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Undergird them with strength today. Encourage them in the Lord their God. Minister to their needs, I pray. And let your great and mighty name be glorified in our midst here this morning. These things we ask in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. We're continuing with the New Covenant. And uh, last week we talked about the Beatitudes, those attitudes that we ought to be. And uh, this morning we're going to continue along that theme. Uh, there are some actions that ought to be manifest when we are certain people. This kind of gets back to the, the concept of holiness versus standards. Uh, there are those... Uh, in our movement that have been guilty, uh, that have been accused, there are others that actually have, pushed standards as a, as a, a means of, of holiness. And you kind of get the cart before the horse when you do that. Because, I mean, I can, I can dress to the nines. I mean, I can, I can, you know, keep my hair short, face shaved, you know, I can dress like this, I can go to bed like this. Um, but if I don't have anything in here, it doesn't really matter. <clears throat> it doesn't matter how I look out here. If in here is ugly and, and, and black and, and vile, if, it, if I have inward holiness, if I'm seeking and striving to be Christ-like, that is naturally going to manifest itself on the outside. That's going to happen by default. I'm going to begin to do those things that please God. Standards as standards, you know, there are, there will probably be platform standards that will be set. Uh, that's not salvation, that's not a salvation issue. That's if you want to be on the platform, this is what you need to do. If you want to work at McDonald's, you got to wear a certain uniform. You don't have to wear the uniform because you don't have to work at McDonald's. <clears throat> but as far as salvation goes, holiness is what we're striving for. Those things that we ought to be. And if I am Christ-like, if I am striving 
toward that relationship with God and toward being the person God wants me to be. The other things are going to happen naturally, organically. I don't have to, I don't have to focus on them. They just kind of happen. They just kind of evolve as my relationship with God grows. I don't know if I've uh, told you guys this before, but my very first service was actually a Bible study, and I showed up in a tank top and spandex shorts. And I felt very comfortable. Please don't try to imagine it. Just, we're moving on. We're moving on. It's embarrassing today (laughs) that that was my first service. But I was very comfortable dressing like that. That's how I dressed. I was in Egypt. I dressed like an Egyptian. But as my relationship with God progressed, that became uncomfortable. It wasn't because someone told me, you can't dress like that. It was because I started being convicted by it. And I started noticing, you know what? No one else is dressing like this. Why is that? So anyway, concerning, concerning the new covenant, the, uh, if we, if we are following the Beatitudes, if we are seeking a relationship with God and striving to be Christ-like, then certain actions are going to, uh, be manifest in our lives because of that. We're not, we're not focusing on the actions per se, but they ought to be there in our lives as a result of who we are in God. Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 20, continuing on with the Sermon on the Mount, says this, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Now, This lesson, uh, last lesson was focused on who we ought to be. This lesson is going to focus more on the actions that will naturally follow when we are who we ought to be. <clears throat> Matthew 5.13 begins by saying, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Now, there are two primary characteristics of salt, certainly, that we need to be aware of. And that's, uh, the first is preservation. The second is influence. Uh, salt is a, it's known as a preservative. It preserves food by making the environment too dry for harmful mold and bacteria to live. Okay, it also influences. Salt influences the flavor of most foods positively. 
According to one food technology publication, Gillette, in an article entitled Flavor Effects of Sodium Chloride, chemical name of salt, quote, salt can improve the perception of product thickness, enhance sweetness, mask metallic or chemical off notes, and round out overall flavor while improving flavor intensity, unquote. So salt, in general, makes food taste better. Application. These characteristics are both always present or both always absent. They are inseparable. In other words, if we're going to be salt, we're going to have both of these characteristics. If we're not salt, we're not going to have either one of them. It's, it's yes or no, you're salt or you're not. Either you preserve and influence, or you don't. <clears throat> as far as preserving, we are to preserve those things God has entrusted to us. God's Word. We just finished a, a series recently on apologetics. Defending Scripture. Being able to properly explain and apply Scripture, not only for our own lives, but to those around us. To be apt to teach, to be apt to explain what the hard verses are, to answer questions that people might have. We are to preserve those things. We have been made the repositories of God's truth. And as such, we have a responsibility, don't we? We have a responsibility to God and to this world to rightly divide the word of truth, to know how to properly handle God's word. We are to preserve truth. We are also to halt corruption and prevent moral decay in our world. We are supposed to be preserving morality. We are supposed to be preserving godliness, righteousness in this present world. And if righteousness and godliness is not being preserved, we have to look at the salt. Because the food isn't going to preserve itself. Does that make sense? The salt is the one that does the preserving. If there is no salt, there is no preservation. We are to influence the world around us for Jesus Christ. We are to affect change in our environment. Our environment is not supposed to affect change in us. We are the ones that are supposed to be the influencers. The world ought not have anything to say about what goes on in the church. There ought not be any worldly influence in the church. The church ought to be influencing the world. That is why we are here. In Old Testament Israel, the reason God dealt with Israel is so that they, through their living example, could influence those nations around them. Those that would come to trade with them. They would bring back to their nations the word of God, the law, the example and the the blessings of the Lord that were poured out upon Israel. Today, the, the church is supposed to be doing the same thing. We are to be living examples of godliness. We are to be demonstrating Jesus Christ to this world. And as such... As such, we have been given a responsibility.
Our responsibility is to demonstrate Jesus to this world, to influence this world for Jesus Christ. And that's not always just talking about God. That is demonstration of who he is, living the way God would have us to live, making the right decisions with our lives, praying, ministering to people. There is such a thing as losing your savor or your saltiness. In Thompson's Land and the Book, he says this about salt. Quote, It is a well-known fact that the salt of this country, i.e. Palestine, when in contact with the ground or exposed to rain and sun, does become insipid, meaning bland, lacking distinctive qualities, and useless. From the manner in which it is gathered, much earth and other impurities are necessarily collected with it. Not a little of it is so impure that it cannot be used at all, and such salt soon effloresces. In other words, it changes either throughout or on the surface to a mealy or powdery substance upon exposure to air and turns to dust, not to fruitful soil, however. It is not only good for nothing itself, but it actually destroys all fertility wherever it's thrown. No man will allow it to be thrown onto his field, and the only place for it is the street, and there it is cast to be trodden under foot of men. Unquote. So if we lose our distinctive qualities, our ability to preserve, our ability to influence, how will the earth be salted then? What will take its place? What will take the place of the church if we fail to uphold our responsibility to this world? There are salt substitutes out there, but they can't just, they can't quite replicate the distinctive qualities of real salt. Scientists, food scientists are not exactly sure how we detect saltiness on our tongue. We know the general area that it happens, but we're not really sure the exact physiological, biological, chemical process that that detects it. But concerning salt replacement, salt substitutes, they're sometimes okay in small amounts, but if you get enough, you can definitely tell the difference. And people, by and large, they can tell the difference. They can tell if we're the real deal or if we're a substitute. If we are salt, it will be because we are consistent with Scripture, that we are actively seeking a relationship, a growing, thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. We are striving to be like Him. We are reading Scripture and we're applying it to our lives. We're submitting ourselves to him. That's how we become salt. If we're not doing those things, then we can't expect to to be influencing. We can't expect to be preserving. If you make peace with the world to avoid persecution and hardship, you will be rendered impotent and unable to affect the world around you for Jesus Christ. We can and we must only have one God. We understand that. 
It makes sense. We know the scripture. Answer of God and mammon. <clears throat> but there are times in our lives where we try to do just that. And if pressed, we wouldn't admit it. And we certainly don't see it. But we don't always put God first in our lives, do we? We don't. That can take a lot of forms. When we pray, do we give God the first fruits of our time? Or do we wait until everything else is done? And then if there's time left, then we'll pray. I know. I know, I know how busy we all are. Believe me, I do. I'm busy. You're busy. We're all busy. <clears throat> but we all have 24 hours in the day. And we can spend that 24 hours however we want. Well, I don't have a choice. Yeah, you got a choice. No one's putting a gun to your head forcing you to do things. We need to prioritize the kingdom of God. If you are, thank you. Thank you. I know I'm not preaching to everybody here. Okay. But some of us maybe need a little encouragement. Let's prioritize the kingdom of God. Let's give him our first fruits. Amen. Matthew 5:14 through 15 says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. <clears throat> Jesus now switches from the analogy of salt to that of light. Three times in the book of John, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. One of those times is John 8:12. He says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This world is in spiritual darkness. And we, through the Holy Ghost and through the Word of God, are the lights that are to illuminate this world. Spiritual darkness is complete. It's absolute. And if anybody is going to discover truth, it will be because that truth is illuminated or revealed to them through Scripture, through the Spirit of God, and that will come through you and me. Okay? Now, in, in a state of complete blackness, it, has anybody ever been, like, in a cave or something, and they'll turn off all the lights, and, and they, it's complete and utter darkness. There's no light at all. It's a creepy thing. It really is. And... I mean, you can go like this, and there's nothing. You can't see anything. But even in complete darkness, you can still discern a few things. I mean, you can you can feel around. I can feel the cave wall. I can feel the the, the cool and, and the wet. I can feel the the texture of it. I can hear the splashing if there's water or the the steps that I'm making. 
I can hear the echoes. It must be a big area. But there's a lot that I can't know. I don't know what color the rock is. I don't know exactly how big it is. I don't know how high it is. I don't know if the water is clear, dirty. There's a lot that I can't determine. Only after I turn the light on am I able to piece in the rest. And so those in the world and those of us who who came into this later in life, there are things that we understood. There are things that people understand about truth. They might believe in God. They might believe that God created everything. But they don't know anything about him. They don't know who he is exactly. They may think of him as a stern, judgmental being. They may think of him as a milksop, sappy, Jesus loves everybody. But almost guaranteed their their ideas of who God is, is is not right. It's only until we can bring scripture to them, we can shed the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, that they're now able to see the rest of the picture. And that's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. We are to be the light of the world. We are to shine in the spiritual darkness. Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Light, of course, is meant to be seen, to shine forth, to make itself known. We don't turn on a flashlight and then cap it. You can just turn the dumb thing off. What sense does that make? We turn on the light so it can go out and we can see things. We let our light shine by our good actions. By demonstrating Jesus to those around us. And again, those good actions stem from right being. Because we are who we ought to be. Then those actions are manifest. People see that. People see how we speak. People see how we dress, how we act. And they're drawn to that. Behavior comes from character, not personality. God gave you the personality that you have. But a certain a certain specific personality is not required to shine the light of the gospel. You can be completely introverted and be very effective in demonstrating Jesus to those around you. When we do this, it's God who receives the glory, not us. It's his character being perfected and revealed in us, not ours. Matthew 5.17, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Up to now, Jesus has spoken of the ideal character of his disciples and of their need of allowing that character to appear throughout their actions, through their actions. Now, Jesus turns to speak of the position that they should hold toward the soon-to-be old covenant. He lets us know his position on the law. Now, we understand by reading the Gospels that uh, he, Jesus was accused many times of breaking the law, wasn't he? Healing on the Sabbath, associating with publicans and sinners, teaching his disciples to not fast, those kinds of things. 
He's letting us know why he came. He came to fulfill the law. In other words, he came to satisfy all the requirements of the law. He came to satisfy them because we couldn't. And we never will. It was impossible for us to satisfy all the requirements of the law, so he came to satisfy them once and for all for us. He lived a perfect and sinless life according to the law. He did. He fulfilled the law. He lived according to it. He never broke it, not once. He satisfied it with his life. The only one that ever did. So he was offered up as the perfect sinless sacrifice under the Old Testament law. And so satisfied the requirements of the law for us. Amen. Matthew 5.18 For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Here Jesus emphasizes the permanence of the law. He would not destroy it. It will remain forever. It is, after all, quite literally, God in written form. But he did fulfill it for us. He brought the law to its intended goal. Fulfillment. In the New Testament, the law of God is more fully revealed to us. It didn't get any better. It got tighter. The standards became higher. The standard now is Jesus Christ himself. The way he lived, that's the standard. But now, of course, God has given us the power to obey, the power to do that. Luke 21 and 33 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The Old Testament remains relevant for the followers of Jesus Christ. But none of it can be rightly interpreted until one understands how it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Every Old Testament text must be viewed in light of Jesus' person and ministry and the changes introduced by the new covenant he instituted. Some of the law was fulfilled with his first coming, the sacrifices, feasts, the, the practice of circumcision, etc. Those were fulfilled in his first coming through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The rest will be completed and fulfilled after his return or after the last days. Spiritual warfare will be no more. Salvation requirements will be fulfilled. All of these things will be completed later on, either during the thousand-year reign or once we enter eternity. All things will be made complete. All things will be done away with at that point. Matthew 5.19 Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> okay, having established the authority, the absolute authority of God's word, and specifically his law, he now lays out the danger of setting parts of his law aside or declaring them no longer relevant, even one of these least commandments. If we do not adhere to all of God's word, believing that some of it just does not apply to us today, or worse, we teach that to others, we will suffer obscurity in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we'll have no power with God. 
were teaching things were adding to or were subtracting from the Word of God at that point. Saying some of the, the book is no longer relevant. We hear that all the time. Miracles were for the first century church. They don't, we don't have miracles today. The gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, that was for the apostles. That was done away with when they were. We hear that all the time. And it's not true. Of course we know it's not true. We're still doing it. But there are other things too that we can become guilty of. Especially teaching that the New Testament is somehow superior to the Old Testament. Now it's true that, I mean, we're under the New Covenant. We're no longer under the Old. And so, Having an understanding of the New Covenant is imperative. Absolutely. That's where we're at today. But we're not going to properly understand the New Covenant unless we also understand the Old. There's a reason we have the Old Testament yet. It is relevant. We preach out of the Old Testament. We teach out of it. It is relevant to us today. All of it. Genesis 1-1 is extremely relevant. If you have a problem with Genesis 1-1, I'd say it is so relevant, you're going to struggle with the remaining rest of the book. If you don't have that one verse down, solid, you're going to struggle with the rest of the book. You will be ineffective in ministry. If you're not applying the whole word of God to your life, if you don't believe the whole book is is at least relevant, if not true, if you don't believe the whole book is true, friend, we've got some foundational stuff to work on. Because, see, here's the thing. Here's the logical extension. If one verse in that book is not true, what else isn't true? Now I can't have faith in any of it. And at that point, why am I even bothering? Because now it's just like every other book. But if it is in verity the word of truth, if it is in truth the very word of God, then I've got to submit myself to all of it. Every verse of it. I can't pick and choose. Covenants he makes with us. We don't get to pick and choose. We say yes to all of it or no to all of it. If I say yes, it's to all of it. And I have got to do all of it. If I don't adhere to all of God's word, I'm going to be at the mercy of the enemy. I will have gaps in my armor, chinks in the protection that God has given us, and the the enemy will find them, and he will exploit them. He will. We cannot give any ground to the enemy. The enemy is the one who is trying to destroy the idea that the Word of God is truth. That's the enemy's work. Don't do his work for him. We need to be those that are defending 
and, pro, and preserving Scripture, explaining that it is God's Word. These are the words of God. They carry His authority, His weight. And so we need to be doing them. We can put our trust in them. We can build a life on them. However, if you do believe and follow the entire book and then teach what you've already professed to be true, well, depending on God to give you the ability to live accordingly, God will reward you with spiritual greatness. You will have power with God. You will be effective in ministry, and God will give you victory over the enemy. Although this verse does not say specifically you're going to be removed from God's kingdom for teaching something other than God's word, there are other verses that do say that. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through chapter 2, verse 1. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift, destru- swift destruction. Revelation 22:18 and 19 says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are, which are written in this book. So we begin to see and understand that the responsibility God has given us, he has given us truth. He has revealed truth to us. He has given us his word. He's given us his spirit so that we can properly interpret God's word. And he has commanded us to preserve and to defend and to teach this word to others. And if we don't take that responsibility seriously, if we just willy-nilly preach whatever sounds good or whatever comes to our mind at the moment, hopefully it's the Spirit of God talking to you, uh, but if it's not, if it's just some pizza dream you had last night, we need to have a care. We need to take this seriously. People that get behind this pulpit, they ought to be spending time with God in prayer, seeking the face of God for a message, for a word from the Lord. Not just reading a something in the paper. Oh, that sounds pretty good. Let's talk on that. When you're preparing to teach someone a Bible study, there need to be there, there needs to be some preparation. Not just so you know, you know the Bible study and you don't make a fool of yourself. I mean, that's always the fear when you start teaching Bible studies. I'm going to look dumb. I'm not going to have the answers to his questions. You know, who cares? Get them. That's how you learn. <laughs> as an aside, there are only so many questions that people ask. Okay? Once you get those eight, ten questions down, you're good. But anyway... Teaching a Bible study, not just so you sound silky smooth, but 
your student, the, the person you're teaching to, has very specific needs. He has things going in, on in his life, her, her life. And you're spending time in prayer so that God can speak to you about that, so that your message begins to be tailored to that person. It's a powerful thing. And so we need to take this, this responsibility seriously. We don't have that many responsibilities in the New Covenant for what we receive from the Lord. But this is one of them. He has given us much, and much is required of us. Amen. Matthew 5.20 says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus introduces our friends, the Pharisees. They're kind of made out to be the bad guys. Some of them probably were. I don't believe all of them were. They're not currently in the kingdom at all. Okay, Technically, no one is at this point. Jesus hasn't died and buried and was risen yet. He mentions them precisely because they were an example of the greatest righteousness imaginable within Judaism. The people, the common people, looked at the Pharisees, and they saw them as the pinnacle of righteousness. That's what they saw. And the Pharisees were very happy to, to perpetuate that. Yes, we are the pinnacle of righteousness. Live up to our standard. <clears throat> so Jesus uses that and says, if that's all you got, you're not going to make it. If the righteousness of the, of the Pharisees is all you can attain to, you're hopeless. You're not going to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't challenge their close attention to the law, but he uses them to demonstrate that under the new covenant, discipleship and a right relationship with God will require a greater righteousness than is currently possible. Under the, under the strict tenets of the Old Testament law, the law did not mention anything per se about inward holiness, about anything coming from the heart. It was all external. It was intended. And it, there are in places, there are places where God does mention that. And even Jesus, he says, those should not have been left out. The weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faith, those ought to have been included. Those ought to have been done, but not to leave the others undone. In other words, that was the intended purpose all along. That was always God's intention, but it was impossible for us to do so because our spirits were dead. Our spirits were dead. It could not receive here the law of God. So it had to be externally enforced. Jesus is saying here, under this new covenant, that's not going to be enough anymore. That's not going to do it anymore. The law is going to be written on the tables of your heart. And that's where the desire is going to come from. That's where the power is going to come from to live a holy and a righteous life. And it's going to have to take place. It's going to have to take place. Under the new covenant, the standard of righteousness is Jesus Christ. The standard of right actions, right being, 
is Jesus Christ. Standards of ministry, standards of truth, standards of everything is Jesus Christ. And if we're not living up to that, it's not because we don't have the power anymore to do so. We have allowed something into our lives. We have forsaken something that ought to be there. Something is wrong. Something is short-circuiting spiritually. And we need to get it right. We need to allow God to come in and make it right. Amen. Because God has given us the ability to do that. God has given us the ability to live a righteous and holy life in Him. We don't have it of ourselves, and we never will. But through Jesus Christ, we can live holy, we can live righteous, and we can live in a manner that is pleasing to Him and gives Him glory. Amen. Let's all stand.